Yeah, um, I told him the other day that, you know, as you get older, you just can't do all the things you were doing when you were younger. But he was playing basketball and messed up his ankle and had surgery on Friday, and he is recovering from that and doing great. He's actually doing really, really well. But I hope you'll be praying for Misael and, and just uh, all that's going on there. He's, uh, he's recovering and experiencing brand new things, which is always always a fun, fun time. Well, it's, it's great to see you guys this morning, and uh, I hope uh, that, that you're participating in the Read Through the Bible in a Year plan with us. We're all trying to kind of read and journal through Scripture, and if you haven't gotten started yet, that's fine. Uh, just jump in right where we are. Uh, you can go to our, our website, themission.net forward slash together, or you can press any button that says the word together. We'll take you to the Bible reading plan in our app or on our on our website. And so if you haven't gotten started yet, I hope you'll jump in and get started. It averages about four chapters a day. If that's a little bit much, okay, read one chapter a day or read two chapters a day, wherever that is, that's great. And if you got started at the beginning of the year and you've gotten a little bit behind, well, that's okay too. Just start right where we are today and uh, just kind of keep up with us because Eating something from the Word is better than eating nothing from the Word, right? And so do a little bit of something every day, and so that'll be a great thing. We're in Acts chapter 15 today. Go ahead and turn there. And that's a passage of Scripture that we read this week as a part of our reading. And I'm just so grateful that we get to do this all together on both campuses. We're talking about it in our small groups. We're talking about things like this with our kids and students. And so it's just fun for us to all be together. And so before we read Acts chapter 15, I just... I just want to set it up a little bit. We're in a series called Extraordinary, and one of the things I think we're seeing, it's actually Extraordinary Obedience, and one of the things I think we see in this series, or we're just going to see it over and over again, is that it's not people who are extraordinary, who's extraordinary acts of obedience that are extraordinary. It's our God who is extraordinary, who's extraordinary, and somehow as we follow him, as ordinary people, God does extraordinary things, and I just love that. I think that's great, and I don't know about you guys, but I've lived my entire life in church. I, uh, my parents joined First Baptist Church in Moore, Oklahoma the year before I was born, and I, I used to tease people that I feel like I was born on a pew. My dad and my mom, they weren't uh, in the ministry like vocational pastors uh, but it felt like there was a season when we were at church every time the doors were open. And then there was a season when we weren't. And then there was a season where it felt like we were in the church every time the doors were open again. And, and one of the things that that means for me is it means all of my greatest memories and best experiences are somehow wrapped around people inside the church. So some of the best things, most fun things, some of the greatest things I've ever experienced happened because or with people that I went to church with. Now, how many of you would just say, that's been my experience? I've had some experiences like that. The people of my church have blessed me. And I said, yeah, that's awesome. I'm so, aren't you thankful for that? I think that's awesome. But because it does feel like I was born on a pew and I've just been in church my whole life, the, the opposite of that is true too. Um, all of my relationships have been church friends and church relationships at some level. And so while all of my best experiences have wrapped around church and people in the church, I can also say that all of the things and all of the people that have hurt me the most <laughs> have been church people. 
And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'd be willing to bet. (laughs) I'd be willing to bet that if I said, hey, how many of you have been hurt by church people? We'd all be like, yes, that's me. You know, that's, we've done that. We've been, we hurt each other. I had a friend whose wife, he was a pastor and his wife would say, you know, this ministry thing would be so easy if it weren't for all these messed up people. (laughs) Just be so much fun if it weren't for all these people. And I just find it fascinating that scripture tells us that they'll know you are Christians by your love. I just find it fascinating that God has characterized our relationships with one another as this incredible gift that he's given to us. And At the same time, it's really not Jesus most people have a problem with, right? It's really some experience they've had with someone, another person in church that would cause them to go, you know, I'm just going to bow out of church because I don't like that person or that person hurt me or they said the wrong thing or they thought I was doing the wrong thing and I don't think they had a right to talk to me like that. So I'm just going to bow out of church for a little bit. Or worse, I'm going to start deconstructing my faith because of the failure of a flawed person Because a sinful person did something sinful that hurt me, I'm just going to stop trusting the Bible and trusting church and trusting Jesus. I'm just going to deconstruct my faith because of that. Now, I don't want to make uh, light of or suggest that anyone's hurt is insignificant. It's absolutely significant. And we do some exceptionally good things for and with one another. At the same time, we do some exceptionally difficult, challenging, and hurtful things to and with one another at times. And so today, in this passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 15, we're going to see a moment when some of the people we think of as the best of us did some things to one another that were just hard and were just kind of mean and hurtful and... And it messed up their relationship for a little while. And actually, a passage like this reminds me of a truth or a principle that I think is really relevant for us today. The most, and I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it because I just think it's true. I think that the most difficult, most significant thing that you or I will ever do is learn how to have a healthy relationship with another person. I think it's the most difficult but the most significant thing we'll ever do. I think it's difficult because we're sinful, right? We're all naturally, we we all naturally lean towards selfishness. We all naturally lean towards wanting it our way. We all naturally lean towards these things that would that put me first and you second and everybody else last. We we all naturally lean that way. So it is one of the most difficult things we'll ever do. If you think about it, it's our sinfulness that not only broke our relationship with one another. It's our sinfulness that breaks our relationship with God. And it took literally an act of God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, through the blood sacrifice of his son Jesus, to fix that sin, to make a right relationship between us and God. And now because of his sacrifice on the cross, he's made it possible for us to have a right relationship with one another. And I think that's the reason why it's not just the most difficult thing we'll do, but also think it's the most significant thing we'll ever do is to figure out how can we have a healthy, right, encouraging, growing relationship with God and with one another. And what we see in today's passage is we see some of the most mature of us, some of the best of us, 
get this wrong. I don't know if I can say it's wrong or not. We'll read the passage. We can see the effect and the outcome of it. And we know God used it for his good and for his glory. But it's really kind of impossible for us to tell whether or not it happened exactly the way that's best. We just know that there was this relational break. And what I'm talking about is I'm talking about the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. And remember, we think about Paul. Man, he's the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. He's the apostle that he was the murderer who was transformed into, into a preacher. And Galatians, his story is amazing. He tells his testimony. He tells his story. And at the end of Galatians chapter 1, he says, And they were hearing only, meaning the church that was hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. I mean, we speak of Paul often and we always speak of Paul with respect. Yet in the passage we're going to read, we're going to see a conflict between Paul and Barnabas that in that moment they simply couldn't overcome. And before we even read the passage, just to put a, a narrow focus on how difficult it is to have a significant relationship with someone else, Barnabas wasn't his actual name. Barnabas was his nickname, and his nickname had significant meaning. He actually earned this nickname, this reputation of being the son of encouragement. All right, so here's the guy who actually, he gave Paul his first chance, right? So Paul gets saved, and Ananias confirms his salvation, but then Paul's kind of off and alone and by himself, and they were hearing only who formerly persecuted us now preached the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Well, who was it who gave him his first chance? Who was it that started telling the story, he who formerly persecuted now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy? Who was that? It was Barnabas. And Barnabas was, he just earned that reputation for being the son of encouragement. So you've got the best theologian Scripture has produced, and you've got the most encouraging person Scripture has identified. And you get to Acts chapter 15, and the son of encouragement is having a conflict with this incredible theologian, godly man who's written most of the New Testament. Man, if that's the way conflict works, if the son of encouragement... <laughs> And this great theologian can have this personal, relational conflict. What hope do we have? Well, I think we have this hope. We have this example of Paul and Barnabas in Scripture. And I think maybe the personal challenge today might be God looking to you and to me and going, I dare you to do better. I dare you. In your relationships with people in the church, in your relationships with your husband or wife, in your relationships with your kids, in your relationships with people outside the church, can you do better than the greatest theologian scripture produced? And can you do better than the man identified as the son of encouragement? I think that's the challenge for us today. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 15, and let's just see what the passage says. It's Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, and we'll just see what happens. You know, one of the things I like to do is I like to honor the reading of God's Word by having a stand as we read it. 
And then as an act of worship, at the end of reading it, I'll just identify that this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond by saying, praise be to God. It's just a, a way of us expressing our praise and worship to God and acknowledging his word has authority in our lives. So here's what Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse 36 says, it says, Then, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. You can be seated. So you see it right there. You've got the son of encouragement saying, hey, let's take John Mark with us on our next missionary journey. And you've got Paul going, no, John Mark is just not mature enough to go with us. He went with us once. He didn't stick with us. He left us. And I don't want to go with someone I can't rely on. You've actually got one person who's being encouraging and trying to lift up a believer. You've got another one who's going, he's not ready yet. And isn't that just a normal argument that people have? Hey, I want to go this way. I want to go with these people. And somebody else is going, well, that's great and all, but I have reason to not be certain that they're ready for that yet. This is not an argument over right versus wrong. This is an argument over good, better, and best. And I think we see that in Scripture a lot. I think we see actually in our lives a lot that many of the arguments that we have Actually, the arguments over right versus wrong, sinful versus not sinful, those should be the easiest arguments for believers to have, right? Hey, the Bible says this, and so I'm going to adjust my life to it. And we're having this conversation, and suddenly you say something that's scriptural, and I realize my life isn't matching up to what scripture says. I don't know that there needs to be any more argument after that. It's not about you coming against me. It's about you being the son of encouragement in my life and saying, hey, that's sinful. Don't do that anymore. But I do think our most difficult, our most challenging conversations aren't about what's sinful versus not sinful between believers. I think it's like this with Barnabas and John Mark. I think the most challenging conversations come when we're arguing over good, better, and best. It's not sinful versus not sinful. It's, okay, we could go with John Mark, but man, he had this... He had this weakness. He left us. Maybe we should. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it'd be better if I went this way and you went that way. Maybe it'd be best if we did something completely different. I think that's the nature of many of our arguments. And so where do the sources, uh, where, where does the source of our arguments come from? Well, James tells us that you know, the source of our arguments comes from our desire for pleasures that war in our members. There's this tension that happens. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but tension isn't necessarily bad. Tension can be good. All of you, I think, got here either on foot or by car today, right? And it was the surface tension between your tires that moved your car forward. And it was the surface tension underneath your feet that got you into the room. Without that, it would have been a slick mess. Actually, you've seen us uh, on really, really slick, icy days. It's like the whole world shuts down because there's just not enough tension to move the world forward. Well, sometimes in our lives, in our relationships, 
We need that, that tension that moves us from good to better to best to move us forward. But here's what ends up happening. So watch this with me. Everybody take your left hand and just do this. And just consider that your left hand are your experiences. These are your experiences. And take your right hand and do that. These are your expectations in every relationship, whether it's a relationship with your parents, a relationship with your uh, spouse, relationship with your church, relationship with friends and family, whatever that is. You have experiences and you have expectations. Now do this. As long as our experiences and our expectations match, everything's fine, right? I expected you to be home at 5 o'clock for dinner, and I spent all night making dinner, and it's 5 o'clock, and you're here, My experience matched my expectations. Valentine's Day is going to be so awesome. You know, those kinds of things. But here's, here's what happens. Actually, think about this for just a minute. Paul had an expectation of John Mark. John Mark said, hey, I'll go with you on that trip. And they got somewhere in the middle of it. And John Mark went, I can't take this anymore. I'm going home. Guess what? The experience that Paul had with John Mark didn't match the expectation John Mark had. Go ahead and do that with me. Experience and expectation. They don't match, and there's this massive gap in between. What do you do do with the gap? You try to close it. You do. And in that gap, we have a choice to make. When our experiences don't match our expectations, that's where the tension comes from. And we have a choice to make inside that. You can put your hands down if you want to. See, I think it's funny because when our experiences don't match our expectations, it's almost like we're duked up and ready to go, right? Let's really throw down and see what happens. But you've got this big blank space between experiences and expectations. You have the opportunity to fill in those blanks with two choices. You can believe the best or you can assume the worst. That's your choice. You can believe the best or you can assume the worst. And don't we see that in Barnabas and Paul? Paul filled in that gap by assuming the worst of John Mark. Hey, he did it once. He's going to do it again. Why would I take someone with me who's unreliable? Paul assumed the worst. Then you've got Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's filling in that gap too. He's going, yeah, Paul, but I'm going to believe the best about him. He did it once. He's learned his lesson. He's not going to do it again. I'll believe the best of John Mark. And so now there's this conflict between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark simply because Paul is filling in the blank by assuming the worst and Barnabas is filling in the blank by believing the best. You know, with your spouse, you have that privilege of being able to choose whether or not you believe the best or assume the worst. With your kids, you have the privilege of filling in the blank with believing the best or assuming the worst. Here's something that happens with me and Londa. Londa has given me so much grace. And in truth, there's no one that I'm going to offend and disappoint more than Londa because we're together all the time. And she's known me longer than I've had more opportunity to offend her than I've had an opportunity to offend anybody else. And one of the things Londa has done for me in our relationship is she has consistently believed the best about me. And it, it's, th- this idea becomes related to another idea that I think the, the strength and length of every relationship can be measured by our willingness to confess when we're wrong and to forgive when we've been wronged. You know what Londa believing the best about me has done? 
In that moment when I know I'm not going to meet her expectations, when her experience with me is not about to match her expectations of me, you know what that's done for me? Because she's believed the best, it's made it really, it motivates me really to be very quick to confess when I'm wrong and to forgive when I've been wrong. I've had those moments when I didn't show up at home when I thought, at the time she thought that I was going to be there. I've had those moments when uh, the money and the month didn't quite match, and we need to have a, a conversation about how does the money work in the house and how are we going to pay for these things. Our experiences and our expectations didn't match for whatever reason. I bought something or we did something we shouldn't have done or, or things like that. And, and it's just amazing how our relationship is different because I don't want to squander the fact that she believes the best in me. So I'm really quick to confess when I'm wrong and to forgive when I've been wronged because I want us to keep believing the best about one another. But how would that be different with you and your kids? If every time they did something wrong, instead of believing the best, you assumed the worst. And every conversation was a, was a finger to the chest. And every time you talked to one another, it wasn't about conviction, but it was about condemnation. It wasn't about correction. It was about, I'm smart and you're dumb. I'm big and you're small. I'm strong and you're weak. I can and you can't. Watch me go and make you feel small. See how the nature of the conversation changes? What if, what if in the relationships we had, our church relationships, our marriage relationships, our parenting relationships, our friendship relationships, what if the fights we had weren't about fighting with one another to prove who was right, but what if they were about fighting for one another to prove what love does? What if it wasn't about me proving how right I am and more about fighting instead of with you, fighting for the relationship. What if that's what, what I did? What if that's what you did? What if we recognized that, you know, I think it's interesting how our fights go. There's this passive-aggressive version of arrogance that we all experience when in the middle of an argument, we make the assumption, we start with the premise of I'm right and you're wrong. There's a kind of passive-aggressive arrogance. I'm right, and you're wrong. But in our generation, and maybe it's been true all along, that problem actually is amplified because even when someone can prove that they're right and we're wrong, there's another version of that passive-aggressive arrogance that comes in the form of, yeah, but my intentions were better than yours. I may have done the right thing or done the wrong thing, but I did it for all the right reasons, and my reasons for doing it are just better than yours. And so I can doubt, deny, discredit. I, I can push everything you just said, no matter how wrong I am. I can push all that away because somehow my intent is just better than your intent. Can I press on us just a little bit today? Can I just push you today with the idea that? That's as arrogant as the other thing. It might even be more so. And so in our conversations with one another, what if we spent those tensions looking for ways to believe the best about one another? What if we invested those tensions in fighting 
for the relationship rather than fighting with one another over I'm right, you're wrong, I'm big, you're small, I'm smart, you're dumb, vice, all of those things. What, what would be different about our relationships and our church? How can we do that? How could we be those people who would set aside our pride, set aside our arrogance, and be able to have legitimate conversations with one another? How could we end up doing something stronger or better than Paul the theologian and Barnabas the encourager? I do think confession and forgiveness are a big deal in that. Those are extremely important values it's interesting, Matthew chapter 5. I think she'll put it up on the screen. We're not going to read it together, but you can, if, it's, if we have it on the screen. Nope, never mind. We don't have it on the screen. So you have to read that yourself. You can Matthew chapter 5. It's talking about coming to the altar of sacrifice. And that idea of what's your intention and what's your action, I think Matthew chapter 5 really reveals something to us. It says, when you come to the altar of sacrifice and you realize that your brother has something against you, here's how important God thinks this is. Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you realize you have your, your brother has something against you and you're at the altar of sacrifice, you should leave the altar. Don't make your sacrifice. You should leave the altar and go get things right with your brother before you come to the altar. And what's interesting about Matthew chapter 5 in this idea of I will confess when I'm wrong there's no indication in Matthew chapter 5, there's no evaluation of whether or not your brother is right in having something against you. It just simply says, if you realize your brother has something against you, go get it right before you come to the altar of sacrifice. God in that moment is not making an evaluation of who's right and who's wrong. He's simply saying, your relationship with people affects your relationship with me. Your relationship with one another affects your relationship with God. And if your relationship with people is messed up, God says, go get it fixed. And he's not saying, I don't care who's right and I don't care who's wrong. He's saying that's not the, the starting point. The starting point is someone, the one who wants to worship God at the altar. It's on you. It's your responsibility to take that step and go, hey, I think, we've, I think you've got a problem with me. And I want to get that right. I think there's something between us that's caused our experiences and our expectations. It's created this tension. And I think maybe we're both assuming the worst about one another. But wouldn't it be better if together we could find a way to confess where we're wrong and to forgive where we've been wrong? Confession, Matthew chapter 5 talks all about it. And then Matthew chapter 18 talks all about forgiveness. Peter, who thinks he's really doing something, comes to Jesus and says, hey, how many times should I forgive somebody? Hey, Jesus, should I forgive them seven times? Oh, I'm really doing something. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, you should forgive them 70 times seven. And I'm thinking Peter's a fisherman, and in his head he's going, God, there's a reason I'm a fisherman. I'm not that good at math, God. 70, 70 times seven, I don't know what that is. And so how many times should you forgive? Well, how many times has God forgiven you? Shouldn't we, at a bare minimum, if, if we've received the grace of God, aren't we supposed to be the ones who extend the grace of God? Why is that easier with a complete stranger? Hey, let me knock on your door and tell you about Jesus. But that person who's in the living room, who I see every day, who did that 
annoying thing one more time. All those idiosyncrasies that were so cute when we were dating are now annoyances that are just amplified with every day that passes, right? Why is it easier for me to extend grace to the complete stranger than it is to the people I care about the most? Well, it's because of the subtle and passive-aggressive nature of my own arrogance. And it's because I'm broken too. So when you recognize the tension, give each other the benefit of the doubt and believe the best. And recognize what Scripture says. If someone has something against you, even whether they're right or wrong, isn't let's go work that out. Because your relationship with people influences your relationship with God. And then I start thinking about this in the context of an entire church. Man, what a beautiful and brilliant thing God has done in his church. And you see it actually in the book of Corinthians played out better than you see it anywhere else in Scripture. You have rich people and poor people. You have young people and old people. You have Gentiles and you have Jews. You have people who were complete pagans that didn't worship anything right next to people who were worshiping false gods and promoting false gods. And they've all, under the banner of Jesus, placed their faith in Christ and gotten saved. And in the book of Corinthians, you see them come together in worship. And there's such a diversity of opinions and ideas and possibilities. And somehow, under the banner of the cross, they come together to worship the same Jesus and to minister together and to minister to one another. You know, our church is fairly diverse. We've got a location here and a location in the suburbs. And the location in the suburbs, there are people who live in rural Oklahoma who will drive to that location to come to church. We've got people who are old and people who are young. We've got people who speak Spanish and English. We've got people who speak uh, Russian. We've got people who speak Russian and Ukrainian who attend our church and English language learners We've got, at one semester, we had like 20 different languages that were represented. So many different cultures, backgrounds, experiences. And somehow, under the banner of the cross, we get to all come together to worship our Heavenly Father. It's such a beautiful and a brilliant thing that God has done if we'll simply, and here's the, here's the word that all of us struggle with, if we'll simply surrender if we'll simply submit to one another. There's some practices that we can have as a church that help us with that. So, for example, as a church, we have some core values. The core values of our church are the non-negotiable things that are just never going to change. Core values aren't set by man. Core values are defined by God. For example, this word is God's word. And when God speaks clearly through his word, it's not my job to adjust the Bible. It's my job to adjust my life to what the Bible says. That'd be a core value of our congregation. If you can't get down with that, you're going to really struggle being here because that's not going to change. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, and the church is his plan for sharing that hope with the world. That's a core value that's just not going to change. If you can't get down with that, I'm not sure you're going to be very comfortable here. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. He was the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can be forgiven, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ 
alone. Those are some core values, non-negotiables, that we just believe because it's what the Bible teaches us. It's what God has shown us. They're core values that aren't defined by us. They're core values that are defined by God. And again, we want you here, and we'd rather you be here than anywhere else. But if you struggle with those core values, you're going to have a struggle here. And then... After you define the core values, which I think our core values are really well defined as a church. You see them in the, our statements of faith. You see them in the way we talk about our vision. We want to love all people to Christ and equip them on their journey with God and one another. We think things like the fruit of the Spirit, practicing that, planting, growing, harvesting, and serving the fruit of the Spirit to one another. We think that's important. What is that? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and Self-control. We think those are important. Those are core values. But in, in, in every church and in every family, there are family values. Family values are negotiable. Family values can change from one generation to the next. Actually, they can change from one family to another. A really low-level example is I'll bet if you have kids that your kid's bedtime is different than my kid's bedtime. <laughs> and some of that's based on the age and stage of the life of my kids compared to your kids. But my family, Londa and I, we're night owls. And so us staying up till the wee hours of the whatever is just normal. But Londa is also not at all a morning person. Londa the bear comes out <laughs> if she is disturbed before a certain hour. And my whole family has learned these things about one another. Our family bedtime ritual is different than yours. Family values are different from people. We've experienced it right here at this campus. Just late last year, our service times were 9.30 and 12.30. And then we got together and decided, well, hey, maybe for everybody it'd be better if we did 9.30 and 11.30. Maybe, or 9.30 and 11, excuse me. Uh, maybe that would be better. Family values change over time, and that's okay. And here's something I see in the life of our congregation, and I see it in the lives of a lot of congregations. Uh, it's a, such a privilege for us to have a wide range of ages in our congregation. We have people who are really young. Misael would be one of those people, right? We have people who are really old. Keith Davis would be one of those people, right? Um, and so I love giving Keith a hard time. It's so good. Um, and there's sometimes this tension that exists between old and young. And sometimes there's this tension that exists between Owasso and Tulsa. And sometimes there's this tension that exists between I want to do ministry like this you want to do ministry like that. Let's talk specifically about the old and the young for a minute. I love the fact that every, when I was younger and as I talk with young people, there's so much passion and so much vision. And I just love it. And with the older people that I know, the more mature people I know, there's so much wisdom and so much experience. And I had a friend at Hera who was a senior adult. And he would come to me and he would say, Hey, Chad, you've got vision. You've got passion. And you know what I have? I have wisdom and I have experience. You can do a lot with your vision and your passion. I can do a lot with my wisdom and experience. You know what happens when we put those two things together? Vision and passion with wisdom and experience. It becomes something that's just unstoppable. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to take some time to listen to you. And I hope you'll take some time to listen to me. Because trendy can be fun but foolish. 
and tradition can become the tyranny of the dead. So let's honor our traditions and let's honor the vision and passion. And let's see what happens when we bring that together. Let's come together to do something more than we could possibly do on our own. See, that's family values. And then the last piece of it is our preferences. Well, man, scripturally, we, we submit our preferences to one another. I open the door for you so that you can walk through first, right? That's not about being chivalrous or gallant. It's about how can I serve you today. I'm going to lay down my preferences for you. I prefer that the lights be one way. You prefer the lights be another way. I prefer that the sound be one way. You prefer the sound be another way. You prefer the songs be like this. I prefer the songs be like that. I prefer that we go to England. You prefer that we go to Mexico. I prefer that we go to see how many different preferences there are. And in this idea of how can I better serve you, we set aside our preferences for the sake of what's best for all. Because our preferences aren't about core values. Our preferences aren't even about our family values. Our preferences are really just about me and what I like versus what you like. And so how could we serve one another better? How could we love one another better? How could we care for one another better? Actually, it's interesting. Um, Several years ago, my family got to go on a trip we got to go to Disney World. And we got to go because my parents and Londa's parents, we all pooled our resources and everybody went. My brother went, my brother-in-law went. We, it was a whole family. We all ended up at Disney World. And my mom is 77 years old. And Londa's mom and dad are 82 and 83 years old. And so this is a few years ago. So they were getting near 80. And it's just amazing the number of things we did because... The grandparents laid aside their preferences because they wanted to experience something remarkable with their grandchildren. Grandkids got a lot of their preferences met while the grandparents were like, I'm just kind of along for the ride. And we had a ball. It was hilarious. We're going through Disney World and there's, uh, let's see, I think we had eight of those little motorized scooters (laughs) because they just couldn't walk. And it was like we had this convoy of old people and then preschoolers running all around them and jumping on and taking a ride and just going crazy. It was hilarious and it was so much fun. A trip like that doesn't happen if our senior adults go, I got to have it my way. Got to do everything my way. Got to do it this way, not that way. This is right. This is wrong. Do it my way. It just didn't happen. The grandparents, as the mature ones, laid aside their preferences in order to connect with the grandkids. Now, it's not always that way. Sometimes we need to ask others to do something different. But here's something I notice. In the laying aside of preferences, it's almost always the mature, and I don't mean by age, it's almost always the spiritually mature who set aside their preferences in order to connect with and bring along the spiritually immature. Actually, in that moment, when I put my foot down over my preferences and I demand my way and I throw a little bit of a fit or maybe even a lot of one, maybe in that moment is when I'm the least 
like someone who is mature and the most like my preschool kids. Maybe. And so today, the beginning of this conflict resolution that we see in Scripture, the beginning of that is recognizing that when our experiences don't match our expectations, we can believe the best rather than assume the worst. We can confess when we're wrong. We can forgive when we've been wrong. We can define what our core values are, what our family values are, and we can be the ones to say, I'm going to be mature enough to set aside my preferences for the sake of this relationship. We can, we can be those people. And you know what happened in the life of Paul and John Mark? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, John Mark, they went off and did their thing. Paul and Silas, they went off and did their thing. And then in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is reaching the end of his ministry, Scripture never defines exactly what happened. But Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he says, Hey, send John Mark to me. He's useful to me in ministry. Somehow, some way, there was reconciliation. There was restitution. There was confession. There was forgiveness. There was growth. The gospel of Jesus Christ spread around the whole world. And it started in a place that had no technology and had no advantage over us today other than these people were willing to walk in the beautiful theology of Paul and the relational encouragement of Barnabas. They would forgive, they would confess, and they would come together for the sake of the gospel. I wonder if we might do that. I'd like to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. <clears throat> the beginning of this relationship with one another is really a relationship with God. I don't know how I can confess or forgive anything that anybody has done to me until I first receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has for me. God makes his relationship with him right first as we have this opportunity to make this relationship right with one another. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, if you've not trusted him for the forgiveness of sins or ask him to forgive you, would you do that today? That's the first step. And then if you have done that, and there's some kind of relational rupture between you and someone else, I'm not even, like Matthew chapter 5, I'm not going to even say who's at fault. If you just realize your brother has something against you, would you take time to carefully, respectfully, in a way that honors them and honors God, approach them and say, hey, I love you. And this relationship's too valuable for us to be at odds with one another. For whatever I've done, please forgive me. And let's figure out a way we can walk together. This gospel is too important. This relationship matters too much for us to let whatever this is get in between us. And they'll know we're Christians by our love. Father, thank you so much for today. 
thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray that we would live up to your word, to your core values, to your standards. I pray that we would be quick to confess and quick to forgive. I pray that we would honor one another with respectful relationships, that we would lay aside our passive aggressive arrogance, that we would lay aside our preferences, that we would be the ones that we would be the ones to take the first step to say, hey, I think I messed up. Would you please forgive me? Can we talk about this? Hey, this was hurtful. Whatever the hurt was, could we talk about this? Help us to be the ones who'd be willing to do that and make our relationships with you and with everyone else unbreakable. We love you, Father, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.